You guys can be seated. If you're a note taker, uh, these notes are all in the app if you're new to our church. If, you've, if you're here as a guest or you've been our guest now for a few times and you're kind of getting into the rhythm of things, on the back side of the paper connection card is a way to download the app and everything that we put on the screen is on the app. So uh, if we can go to the, to the next slide, please. Isaiah and the kingdom of Jesus. So the promise that God proclaimed through Isaiah was that corruption and oppression of the nations would be brought to an end through Jesus. So there's kind of a starting point for us that Isaiah, again, now seven, eight hundred years before Jesus is born, is promising something about Jesus. And we experienced this a couple weeks ago as Isaiah has started pressing into promises about Jesus. Some of them have a real application in the moment. Some of them are strictly about Jesus. Today, we get a glimpse forward, in fact, all the way past our day into a day where Jesus makes everything right. And I know that if, you're, if you live in this world, if you live in the same place I live in, this world is broken, right? I mean, we all agree that there's something wrong. And we live in a great country, we live in a great nation, but this nation right now is is splitting and, and is, is divided and is pretty heated. The rhetoric on news and politics is ugly. Even though we live in a great place, this place right now is struggling. Fair? And there are nations on this country that imprison their own, that enslave their own people. There are dictators, um, a place I've been in Zimbabwe where Mugabe is an absolute dictator and just, he is a gazillionaire, and all his people barely can eat. And anything that, and we can't even help him as a government, we are, as a nation, we can't even help them because anything we send down there, he just takes. There's real, real oppression. I don't mean the oppression like we feel here. I mean, there is real oppression where people are enslaved. I'm not making light of anybody's problems here. I'm just saying, there are places in this world where people are, are hostage, where people are prevented from eating, where people are prevented from growing. There are hotbeds of, of wars around this world. There are places that are just unsafe. And as we look at this passage, Isaiah is speaking to a people that are about to be conquered by another people. And so let's read that first verse. So Isaiah... Uh, just, in fact, I want to just begin with these first few words. In verse 1, it says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, the her is the people of God as he speaks to a nation. He says, There will be no anguish, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And so if we back up, and if we just even look at what we have been talking about in the book of Isaiah, here's where we've been. God has called a prophet, a man named Isaiah. A prophet is simply this. One who speaks God's word with God's authority, right? God, he comes and he speaks on behalf of God. He speaks with God's, with God's authority. And in this case, he is speaking to who should be the people of God. And so I like to liken that to us. This should be the people of God. Us sitting here that call ourselves followers of Jesus, there should be some expectation on that. There should be some expectation for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, that that would mean that we are followers of Jesus alone, right? Not followers of Jesus on Sunday and then followers of Buddha on Monday, agnostic on Thursday, or however that works, right? 
That there's expectation. If we say we're followers of Jesus, there's an expectation that we would live in such a way where we are pursuing living like Jesus. Now, disclaimer, of course we're all flawed and we fall short, right? But if I said I was something else, if I said I was a vegan, you would have expectations about how I eat, right? If I said I was a soccer player, you would have expectations that I actually play soccer, right? Is that fair? The people of God, there are expectations, And the expectations on the people, they are worshipers of God and that they are living lives pursuing that worship of God, that they are attempting day by day to to draw nearer to God. Well, they're not. And so God has been speaking to them. This is not the only prophet of this day. This is just the one we're working through. So God calls a man named Isaiah who is flawed like the rest of us, but God can use him. God anoints him to speak on his behalf, and and Isaiah begins to speak to the people and warn them, either you return to God, or God's going to allow these nations that are making noise all around you, he's going to allow them to come in and wipe you out. And so here's the real-life conversation to them. Turn back to God, quit oppressing your own people, right, Live justly. One of the things that they are called to do is care for the widows and orphans. Live with justice in mind, with care and generosity. And and lay down all the idols that you've added into your collection of worship and worship God alone. Well, Judah, the people of God in this story, refuse. And I use that term, the people of God, very loosely. These are the people that should be that should be already doing the things that God is calling them to, but they're not. And so the warning from God is, if you don't turn back, now you understand this warning goes for decades, day after day, decade after decade after decade, God is calling them to return with little, if any, people returning. So he says, listen, last chance, you either return to me or I'm going to allow the nations around you to conquer you in war. And so that's where we pick up this story. Now, there's, there's one glimmer of hope because Isaiah, especially the first 39-ish chapters, can be incredibly heavy, as we've already experienced here, as they were just calling out sin after sin after sin. And the hard part is, as, as we read the sins of the people of, Jer- of Judah and Jerusalem, we recognize those in ourselves here in America, here in this church. So this can be an incredibly heavy book for us to work through, but God in his grace keeps interspersing hopeful words. Isaiah 6 had this just a few weeks ago. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is desolate, a waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it felled, the holy seed is its stump. So he gives this image. Listen, as I let these, these armies come in and wipe you out, I'm going to preserve for myself a remnant among the people. And he gives this image. Now, if you can just imagine a gigantic tree and someone fells that tree, someone just kind of chops that tree down and you have this stump left and it says even the stump will be burned down. But from that stump, a holy seed will come. So he's saying, from all these people, as they are wiped out by other nations and burned to the ground, I'm going to preserve for myself a people, like a little leaf, 
little branch that begins to kind of grow out of that burned down stump. And so in the midst of all of this, God's promise is, and yet I'm st- I still love you. I'm still going to preserve you. I'm still going to keep my message alive through you. And just as we get into this passage today so that we can hear this in that context, imagine if we were just looking at the people here. Let's just say there's a hundred of us. And God says, I'm going to allow other nations just to wipe you all out except ten of you. Because you've not heeded my, my warnings. Because you've not listened when I said you've, you've included idolatry in your life. You're oppressing other people. You don't have a heart of justice. You don't care for the widow and the orphan. And it's because of that, and because I've told you time and time and time again, because you haven't returned to me, I'm going to allow the nations just to wipe you out. But because of my grace and love for you, I'm going to preserve a small people group. And they're going to begin to tell the story of God again. They're going to pretend, they're going to again Push out the message of God's grace and God's love. So start again, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. So a promise is made. For the, for the area that there is going to be gloom and anguish, he says, now I'm going to look past that. And when all is said and done, there will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. So for the people that endure all of this, there will be a day that I will come and I will wipe this away. And he talks about former and latter times. And so what he's talking about in the former times, in this passage, he's talking about the time that they currently live in and when God allows the other nation. Now remember, God is not, God is past the if you repent, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to prevent the nations from coming in. They've already denied him. King Ahaz has already said, no, I don't want your help, God, and literally went to the surrounding nations. So God has now told them what he's going to do. I'm going to come in and wipe you out, but I'm going to preserve a people. And so God is now speaking in a time after that. So after all of this is wiped out, so after all of the people are killed or this generation is lost, but I preserve a small portion, I will come back. And I will remove the gloom and I will remove the anguish. So the former time is the time where they're sinful and and they're rebelling against God. The former time is the time that's about to happen. So former sounds like it's in the past. But as Isaiah's writing it, he's writing about the future looking backwards. So when the nations come in and wipe you out, that's the former time, even though it hasn't happened yet. So I hope that makes sense. And then in the latter time, what he's saying is, now, after that, now, Isaiah right here is going to pivot because all of that is true for them that day when they're hearing it. All of that is true that a nation is going to wipe them out and God's going to preserve a remnant. And after that, God is going to restore them again. Unfortunately, they're going to do this again and then another nation is going to wipe them out. But God is telling the story. So God stops from this is what I'm going to do in your lifetime and he begins to speak about something much bigger. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So there's this image of light and dark all throughout Scripture. And, and, and in Scripture, there's this, 
There's this back and forth. In fact, Paul will use this language, and I've, I've even taught about it and just thought, okay, as it talks about light and describes what God is doing over here, and then he kind of zooms over here, and this is what darkness looks like. And over here, there is righteousness, holiness, and peace. And over here, there's sinfulness and brokenness and pain. And there's this large contra- contrast given between these two things. And this is a theme used throughout Scripture. In fact, it begins in the garden when God speaks and there is light. And from there forward, the image of light is where God is blessing, where God is making right, where God is speaking, where God is moving, there's this image of light. And where, where evil is triumphing is this image of darkness. So it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So I want to give you a couple of notes. A great light. The image of light throughout Scripture is used of God shining into a sinful world or holiness shining into dark, sinful places. Just like God who spoke light into existence, so too God is promising light to be spoken into our lives. And so I want to take this out of Isaiah. I want to take this out of being something almost 3,000 years ago. I just want to land it right here for a minute. So in our lives, we experience darkness, right? That may be caused by things we do. Like I cause a lot of my own problems, right? My sin has caused me a lot of pain. And so in that darkness, in that gloom, in that pain, that's the darkness. But God continues to speak light into those places. In the nation that we live in, there's some pretty dark things that happen here. In this world that we live in, there's some pretty dark things. I think one of the worst people on the planet, doesn't get a, lot of whole, a whole lot of press, but is Mugabe, down in sub-Saharan Africa, who is an absolute dictator, an absolute oppressor in a nation, and, and just, we don't even hear about it, but it is a dark, dark place. In our lives, maybe we struggle in a relationship, and it's just, there's this darkness, this hardness, this hardship that hangs over a relationship, or maybe we struggle with a specific sin or addiction or something, or maybe there's this, this gloom of depression and pain in our life. And that's what God is speaking about as well. It doesn't have to be an oppressive nation. Second Corinthians says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge, to the glory of God, in the faith of, face of Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear this contrast where there is darkness, where there is pain, where there is loneliness, where there is hopelessness. God says, I will speak light into that. I'm going to read verse 2 one more time. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep deep darkness, on them light has shone. So Isaiah begins to foretell of Jesus. He begins to tell in advance that God is going to do something unique, and he's going to slowly but surely, in in, in this first verse, it's a little obscure. Okay, well, light into darkness isn't really speaking of a person isn't maybe, you know, isn't speaking of a nation, isn't really clear on what he's saying. Of course, if you fast forward to like John chapter one, where it talks about the word became flesh and then switches to, and he was the light and the light dwelled amongst the men. And we, we know that where Isaiah is going with this. But Isaiah is starting with some language in the back and he's gonna, he's gonna zoom in so close that you can't miss that it's about Jesus. 
starting from this, so light will shine into this darkness. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Have you ever tried to, or spent time, just considering what it will look like when Jesus makes everything right? Have you just thought, okay, when when all this is said and done, and Jesus returns, or when Jesus reigns and rules, and I don't mean... And I don't mean some kind of heavenly context. Remember, a lot of times we hear about Jesus and eternity in heaven as if it's this spiritual realm and it's not anchored here on earth, right? And just, just to be clear, read uh, uh, the things that God promises. It's about restoring this earth. It's about restoring an actual physical place where we all live, but we live here without sin, So the Bible goes from the garden, a place God created that is without sin, and then humanity interrupts it with sin, and then we live in this story where sin corrupts this planet, where sin corrupts the people, where sin corrupts what we have, and and death and pain and suffering and sorrow is a part of the result of sin, and then Jesus enters into the story and begins to redeem and restore people, promising one day he will return and redeem everything, including this earth. Right, is that story, is that, does that make sense? A lot of times in movies we see heavenly clouds, and I know movies are not aiming at what the Bible says necessarily, but we get this idea of some existential existence that has no physical earthly place. But what the Bible speaks of is fixing this. Of fixing this place we live. Have you ever considered what this world would be like without sin? That's what Isaiah is going to picture or paint for us. He's going to give us an image of what living in a, in a world without sin, in a world where God is present, in a, in a world where ultimately Jesus is king and Jesus reigns, he's going to begin to portray that picture in this passage. And here's what he says. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So in every, in, in, in an agrarian setting where they live off the land, they either grow their food or they, they have animals that they, they use for food as well and they barter and trade. This is an agrarian setting. And so harvest means something to everyone. 27, 2,800 years ago, a harvest was everything even in Jesus' lifetime, right? Up until an industrial age where we buy our, our food at, uh, a grocery, a, super, a supermarket, a grocery store, where we go and we shop in an area where you lived off whatever land you had, or you grew whatever you ate, and then all you did was trade with other people to get variety. This is everything. A harvest, if you miss a harvest, you go hungry. And so as people would do this, they would spend time, they would, they would plant, they would tend the ground, they would plant they would water, and then there was a season of waiting. I think I wrote it down like this. Can you put that note on the screen, please? Every harvest begins with a season of planting and watering, a season of waiting, and then, God willing, a season of harvest that brings incredibly, excuse me, my typo, incredible joy and provision. 
Where might we be in that process? Here's what I mean by that. If we are waiting on a joy like a harvest, imagine what we, if you use that image, we're waiting for that season where there is great joy, great celebration, where everything is provided for us. In other words, more than just the food we need, but God's provision is there for us. Imagine the joy we would encounter. Imagine the joy that we would feel. Feel. But every harvest requires that there is a season of tending the ground and making it ready. Every harvest has a season of planting and watering. And I've, and I, I've never lived this way. But clearly there's a season where after it's in the ground, well, you just kind of have to care for it and wait. And I think that's where we are today is there's this sense of waiting and longing for what God has in store. That there's a sense of, I, I'm, I'm here and I trust in what you're doing, God, and I, I trust in your goodness, God, and I know that you have promised that someday, one day, Jesus, you will reign physically here, and that Satan will be bound, that evil will be gone, that our sin will be purged and cleansed, that we will get a new heaven and a new earth, that we will literally get new bodies that aren't plagued by sin or, or, or illness or death. But it feels like we're in that season of just waiting. And I'm sure that in that season, if that season takes too long enough, I'm sure it gets hard and you begin to wonder, hey, is what I've done, is it really going to produce something? Like, is there going to be enough? Are we going to have enough to eat? Are we going to be able to get through the year that we have in front of us. And here's his first promise. As he, as he unpacks this to the people, he says through Isaiah that they will they multiply the nation, increase their joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest than the, when they are glad to divide the spoil. Verse four, for the yoke of, this, of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So many of you may know the story of Midian you can go back to, uh, I think it's Joshua 6. You can go back to it and find the story uh, as, as God is, is speaking to his people who have been oppressed. They've been conquered by a nation named Midian. And finally, God begins to gather some people up, and he's going to go, and he's going to provide them a way to conquer the people that are oppressing them because they continue to oppress them day after day. And if you guys have seen the movie 300, if you're familiar with that story, that's really, it's kind of rooted in this idea that God says, I'm going to call you forward. I'm going to call you to take over this nation. I'm going to call you to beat back the oppressors. But what he does is he walks them through this process where he doesn't allow them to use their whole army. And he whittles it down to 300 men that are going to go in and that are going to be the ones he uses to conquer Midian. But in this sense, this is, a, this is one of those stories that is still told throughout history. And this is, if you're Israel, in the days of Isaiah, that was an amazing victory in your somewhat recent past. It says, remember when we pushed out the oppressors. Remember when we ran Midian back. Because what God is saying is now Assyria is going to conquer you. And then after that, Babylon's going to conquer you. But listen, there's hope in the future. Just like God beat back Midian, God will beat back this too. So he says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. So Judah is going to be enslaved, but liberated again. For your notes. 
Freedom from oppression. Consider all your burdens and pain on this earth, health issues, financial strains, relational problems, and social challenges. Whatever struggles you face, all removed permanently. That's what God is promising here. Now, I, the variety of things that we endure in life is pretty vast, even in just this small group of people, right? But we've all lost loved ones and suffered under that pain of losing someone, right? We've all had health issues or known someone who has. We've all, you know, many of us have battled with addictions or battled with struggles internally. And God is saying, listen, I will take all this oppression. This is the oppression of sin over us, not necessarily our sin, but sin in general. The, the broken world we live in because of sin causes the pain you and I feel today. That's why marriages, no matter how great your spouse is, marriage is always going to be hard, right? I know none of you are allowed to answer real fast. Women, you can answer. <laughs> Men, shh, perfect, right? No matter how much you love them, children are hard to raise, right? I see you're a little more brave there, at least. All right, good. Work, no matter how great your job, work is hard, right? Health issues are real. Financial struggles are real. Sometimes inside of us, we deal with with emotions and things that we just can't control, be it anger or depression or whatever. Like we live in a world that is broken, and and that is just the broken, the sinful world that we live in causes those things. And so he's saying, I am going to liberate all of this. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. What he's saying is all the implements of war and the, the, the specific boot that he's talking about is this long range army who would walk from where they are to where they have to be. And then their clothes after battle that are drenched in blood. That all of these will be rolled up because there will be no more need for war. And so these will become the fuel for fire. Isaiah also said this in chapter 2, and he says this, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So here's what God is saying. The world you live in today, it is, it is just a part of being in a broken world, the fact that we have to have a military. And God bless our military that they, they are willing to do that and serve and, and protect us and prevent us from losing our freedoms and, and to provide the life, right, flawed as we are, the best nation still. We're the best kind of system that there is. There's a great quote, and I won't get it word for word, but it says, I think it said, democracy is a terrible system. Or is, oh, democracy is the worst system in the world unless you live somewhere else. Winston Churchill. Right? It's flawed. It's broken. Where we live, it's not, it's, it's not perfect. We live in a broken world. It's still the best case scenario in a broken world. And yet we still feel real pain. We still suffer real things. We still long for provision. We still see a world at war. I mean, some really good news this week, right, that maybe the caliphates are all gone and that maybe some more people can come home. Well, we live in a world of war. And we've been at war since 2001, or beginning of two. We've been at war for a long time. 
And this is a promise that all those implements of war, in this one, the boots and the blood-stained clothes, in Isaiah chapter 2, it's the spears and the swords, that they will, again, be beaten into things, farming implements, in his example. In other words, we will go from a place of war to a place of great harvest, that we will just be reaping all of goods, God's generosity and goodness. Verse 5, for, un, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You don't have to know a whole lot about the Bible to have that verse sound familiar. We hear a lot of that every year around Christmas. This is requoted again in Luke chapter 2. This is, again, a proclamation of the gospel. Isaiah lives in a time that we often misunderstand as not having a clear gospel. But the gospel, the message of Jesus, doesn't start with Jesus 2,000 years ago. The message of Jesus starts back in the garden when humanity failed, and God proclaims Jesus to come. And then over and over and over again, God covenants with a people God tells his story of redemption, how he will enter into human history and redeem humanity and restore this world and fix all that is broken. He does that through Abraham. He does it through Isaac, through Jacob. He does that over and over again through Israel and King David. And fast forward to Isaiah, he preaches the gospel incredibly clearly through Isaiah. And if you're unfamiliar with the gospel in its just simplest form, and it is, it is fairly simple. It's unending in its implication. It is incredibly powerful, uh, all powerful, all that we need. But it's fairly simple that we were created by God and loved, that we are loved. Even in our fallen ways and our brokenness and our sin and our absolute rebellion, God loves you. God loves me, he loves you. God desires us to be the way we were created to be. And that, that is simply that we were created to be worshipers of God. But as you know, sin entered into human history. And as sin entered into human history, so did death, so did pain, so did oppression, so did struggle. And we just watch as it just ripples throughout, the, as we read through scripture, just watch as it gets worse and gets worse, and gets worse. And the gospel says God created you and loves you. God has called you to worship him, but you have chosen to go your own way. But God in his mercy and his, his love for you will not leave you there. God has no requirement to come and rescue you or rescue me from something we choose to do. God has no need to come and fix you if you're running away from him, but God in his love just can't let you go. So God in his gracious, tender mercy and his benevolence and his care for you decided, no, instead I'm going to enter into human history. And so God became flesh. So Jesus became flesh. For unto us a child is born. A son is given. And so Jesus comes and enters into human history and enters in not as a king, not as, a, not as royalty, not as, as someone rich and wealthy, but Jesus enters into Galilee, a, 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 a small area, a poor area, and grows up in, in less than ultimate circumstances, less than great circumstances. But Jesus enters into this world with a purpose, and that's to live the way you and I are called to live. That's to live the way of a worshiper of God. And so God, as we looked at in 
two chapters ago, I think it was, as we looked at that prophecy that a virgin will bear a child. And so Isaiah has been unfolding this message of Jesus. And now it says to, to us, a child is born, a son is given. That that son will grow up and that he will remain sinless. He will live the life that we've been called to live. God in human flesh will live as we are called to. And then ultimately he will go and take our penalty and die on a cross because sin requires death. My sins require that someone dies, either me or Jesus. And so Jesus, God in human flesh, goes up on a cross and dies, pays the penalty for you and for me, and then they bury him in the ground. And and again, I say this a lot, but how the creator and inventor and author of life could die, I will never understand. But Jesus is laid in a grave for three days and then resurrects to life. And that's, that's the very thing we're getting ready to celebrate in a month. The resurrection of Jesus, everything else we will do. We'll live, we'll die. Unless Jesus returns first, that's going to happen. But raising from the dead, that's big. And this is what they said. So the gospel is that Jesus will enter into human history. He will live the life you're called to live, but have fallen short, that I've fallen short. He will die the death that I deserve, that you deserve. He will be laid in a grave and then raise again to life to live forever. And then that Jesus will ascend back to his throne as he pours out his spirit upon us as we wait for his final return to make everything right. And that's what this passage says. And listen to the names. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't care what political persuasion you are in the room. Left, right, sinner, or other, whatever. No one here right now thinks everything's going right. True? Right? I don't care who you voted for. I don't care who you're voting for the next time. We all admit this place is broken. Right? And yet we have it best and still broken. And the government shall be on his shoulder. Won't it be nice when someone perfect finally takes that office and the government is on his shoulder where Jesus himself reigns as king. Jesus, who is perfectly just. Jesus, who is, who is perfectly generous. Jesus, who is perfect. God in human flesh when he reigns here for us. When we can finally quit trying to vote for the next right person or the next lesser of two evils or whatever, right? When we can finally embrace, we have a king who is perfect, a king who is holy, and on him, a government that is without flaw will finally be. It says, for us to a child born, Jesus will be human. The government will be upon his shoulder. Jesus is the eternal king. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This wonderful is the sense of he will perform wondrous things. In other words, he will be a miraculous king. That he will come in omnipotence and power. It says, Jesus is God Almighty. So not only is Jesus human, but Jesus is God. This is an incredibly important passage. Before Jesus ever lived, walked, talked, breathed, or made any claims about himself, God says he will be both human and divine. That he will be God in human flesh. And Jesus is our everlasting Father. Now, the words Father are normally attributed to God the Father, but there are a few exceptions 
And Jesus is seen as the father of this nation, the one who is the reigning king and ruler, the wonderful counselor. He is, in this sense, father. And even as he spoke to his disciples, he said, children, little children, he would call his disciples children, come to me. Right? He plays that role of often we say big brother or even father. And so don't confuse that with God. This is still speaking about Jesus, everlasting father, and then prince of peace. I don't even know if in this body, in this life, in this place that we live, I don't even know if we can understand what that kind of peace would be like. We feel the inner struggles, we feel the external struggles, we feel the global struggles, we feel the socioeconomic struggles. That I, we, just, we feel so many of those things, we endure so many things that I don't even know that we have a way to capture this kind of peace. But that he will be the prince of peace, everlasting peace. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah, this will happen. Isaiah, this man will come. This Jesus will come. This king will come. This peace will come. This harvest will happen. But you've got to imagine you're that person and we are, who right now we're in that kind of phase of just waiting patiently that God will provide that harvest, that God will provide everything he has said. And yet in this season, he also uses us and grows us and challenges us and changes us. See, a lot of people are waiting for the end where Jesus will become the king of kings. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus reigns now. It isn't in the way that he is promising to return and reign fully, but Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords today. He is God on the throne today. He is the wonderful counselor, almighty God, prince of peace today. We get a chance to live in that as we anticipate his return. Let me close with just a couple things. God promises an eternal king in an era of time where people wanted the very things we want today, healing, peace, joy, justice, an end to corruption and oppression, God promises that Jesus will bring this upon the earth forever. All the things that plague us today, God has promised to reconcile in the end. That he is putting an end to them through Jesus now in us and will put an ultimate end to them as he returns. Matthew 4 says it like this, And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen, not will see, have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. We don't have to wait. We don't have to anticipate. Yes, we eagerly long for that day where everything is made right. But we get to worship that king, seek that harvest today. Jesus is king now. Jesus is today the very thing we await. A child who was born in the flesh is a son, 
and the government is upon his shoulder. His name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is that today. Let's pray. Jesus, as we gather this morning, we, we need you. We gather, and, and wherever we are, maybe in the midst of a great season of plenty, a season of harvest in our lives, a place where we are, where we are, are good and, and well and cared for, maybe we're in that right now. Maybe we're on the other side of life. Maybe we're in that season of pain and struggle. But wherever we are, we need to know you are already the King of Kings the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, our eternal King, that high and above, exalted above everything else, every ruler, every government, every authority that's alive, above all that is you. Jesus, we get to worship you now. As we long to see this earth redeemed, as we long to see, as Revelation says, a new heaven and a new earth, a place where there is no weeping, where there is no sin, where there is no pain, Jesus, you have called us to a foretaste of that now. You have called us to a sample of that ahead of time. You call us to press in and live for you. Jesus, empower us to do so, please. Call us to you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.